Welcome to Esray Pod with Amy Quinn and Joe Walsh. This week, we talked to Werner Baumgartner, official historian of the city of Asbury Park. We talked to Werner about what brought him to Asbury Park in the first place, and how does one become the official historian of a city? What are the historian's duties, and what would a historian do if the city gave him $10 million? Welcome, Werner. The matters addressed in this podcast represent my own personal views and opinions concerning issues affecting the citizens of Asbury Park in my capacity as the deputy mayor of the city of Asbury Park. They do not necessarily represent the official position of the city or the official position of the Asbury Park City Council as a whole. I am developing and implementing this podcast in an effort to keep citizens informed. However, this is not an official City of Asbury Park podcast and does not, and I repeat, does not represent the official position of the city or the governing body. Their interviews always hit the mark, so subscribe to Asbury Park. I mean, pod, be informed, don't be in the dark. Everybody listen to Asbury Park. I mean, pod, everything you need to know. Brought to you by Amy and Joe. If you're local, they're the pod for you. But Bennies are welcome and Shoebies too. Route 35 to Convention Hall. As Barry Pod covers it all. As Barry Pod, I love you. I love you. All right. We're going to welcome our listeners to As Barry Pod, April 10th. I think this um, is uh, episode 70. Is it really? God, it's been mm-hmm. a few years, right? Yeah. Because we started this pre-pandemic. Our first person who actually, in, interestingly enough, I believe has the number one most listens is Laura Popel, who has organized the um, Asbury Park Gay Pride uh, Festival at the, um, at, you know, at the Bradley and Atlantic Park. She has, she's our first person and she actually has the most listens. And then I think it's interesting. It becomes like uh, Dan Jacobson. Which you could mm-hmm. kind of see the guys who did the uh, cardboard tree. Anyway, Werner, he got competition to see if you're going to uh, get the most lessons. I'll let you know. I'll keep you updated. I'm going to blow away all your stats, hopefully. Okay. <laughs> um, so I have, I have such an irritation level because I watched the last episode of Killing Eve, which I'm not going to give it away, but the ending is like infuriating to me. So <laughs> no, moving along. Um, so today, today we welcome uh, uh, Werner Baumgartner, the Asbury Park historian. We do. Yeah. And Werner, do you want to give a little introduction on yourself? Well, greetings. Uh, hello, everyone. My name is uh, Werner Baumgartner. Um, I've been in Asbury uh, over 40 years. I moved here in 1978, uh, just out of the blue, cold turkey, and didn't know. From any- where, Werner? Where did you move here from? Long Island. I uh, grew up on Long Island and uh, moved to New Jersey to take a job at uh, Bell Labs over in Holmdel. And uh, being a young man in my 20s, I was looking for a good place to live. So I, I basically lived in my car for a month and drove around the shore. <laughs> Uh, Long Branch, uh, Titton Falls. I even camped out uh, in a residential neighborhood across the street from the, the Bell Labs property while uh, a house was being built uh, right on the side of the road. But anyway, <laughs> I found Asbury Park uh, to be suitable. It was a half and, hour. Well, my- let me ask. So when you say you're like assessing Long Branch and your, you know, Asbury Park in 1978 was not you know, was not for the faint of heart back then. Yeah. Um, what, what was it? The architecture? Was it the people? Was it, you know, what was it that you were like, you know what, this is where I'm going to set up shop? Well, it was clearly different than everything else. Architecture wise, you know, monumental buildings, terrific layout, uh, historic homes. But I'll tell you, the uh, the deal breaker was it had to be within a half hour commute door to door to my office and as far south as possible. And it just happened. I took a compass. Being an engineer that I am, I took a, a compass and I drew a circle on a map and it went right through Asbury Park. And cheap <laughs> rent didn't help either. Yeah, now I'm sure cheap rent. I paid 160 a month, all utilities included. I found a little apartment. Where? Uh, 7th Avenue, 511 7th. Nice neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. I had a lot of fun. <laughs> The um, you when I 
Amy mentioned that we're going to talk to the Asbury Park historian. I was wondering, you know, what, um, well, how did that happen? So I, I just skipped part of the story. You moved to Asbury Park in the seventies. Then what happens? I don't want to, you know, I just realized that's just, I just, I, I'm probably answering my own question here. So what happens next? I'm kind of feeling out the place, you know, when it was kind of like a Mecca, like a wonderland for us, a young man at the time, bars on every corner, um, you know, a lot of nightlife, uh, it was really quite fascinating. Although my coworkers um, chastised me and said, Asbury Park. Oh my God. I can't believe you moved to Asbury Park. Uh, but I thought it was great because I didn't have any preconceived notions. I didn't know anything about uh, the decline and the riots and the dangers or anything. So I viewed all the positive aspects at the time through fresh eyes. So I have to tell you one thing when I moved to Asbury Park about 2000 ish, um, I moved from Jersey City. Jersey City, number one. All mm-hmm. my coworkers in Jersey City were like, you know, we're not visiting you in Esbury Park. You know, yeah. Esbury, you know, their their opinion of Esbury Park was so brutal. And mm-hmm. we lived in the Greenville section of Jersey City, but their opinion of Esbury Park was so brutal. They were like, nobody's ever going to see if you move there. So I only say that to illustrate in 1978 and then in 2000, people had the exact same opinion of Esbury Park, well, which is when, nobody should move there. When I came here a few years later, I'm going to guess, oh, geez, I don't know. I've lost track how long I've been here. So 2008, um, same thing. People didn't want to come. And after a while, I was like, I'm fine with that. I've got, you know, Asbury is a very nice small town, you know, in the wintertime. So you got to know your neighbors. It turned out to be a very, at the time, very kind of a quiet place to live, despite its fearsome reputation, you know? So I was quite happy to let people, fine, don't come. That's fine. We're going to have a good time. There's lots of things to do, you know? Mm -hmm. Anyway, I cut you off there, Warner. Sorry about that. Oh, well, you know, it, that, that leads into another little comment of mine and uh, getting to know your neighbors. It is a small town. It, it's got big city problems, but it's like Mayberry, RFD. <laughs> Not so much now, but in those days, when you went to a, a club or went someplace, you knew everybody. You knew everybody in the room, except maybe in the summer, you know, a lot of tourist business. But the winters were golden because uh, it was just the locals hanging out. And uh, it was a lot of camaraderie, very nice atmosphere. Yeah. I always tell the story like during hurricane Sandy, when the brick wall was the only place in town and Georgie's were the only two places in town that had a generator, you know, I went to the brick wall every night and I saw the same people, former Asbury park police chiefs, like, you know, like everybody was there, you know, it was, yeah, yeah. You know, it, was a, it, it was a good time. Oddly enough, I had a great time <laughs> during that terrible time. Well, Werner will appreciate this. So when I came to Asbury Park in like 2000, the first place I went to was Kingsley Deli because it was the only place that was open. You couldn't get, there was no other place to get a sandwich. So I run into Kingsley Deli. Rita's there with her cat. I'm forgetting her cat's name now. She had this cat that was always roaming around this deli. Named Kingsley. The cat's name was Kingsley. You're totally right. And and she's, you know, kind of like, what are you doing here? Why are you here? And I'm like, oh, I might move here. I don't know. I'm not, I don't know what I'm doing here. And um, but that was my uh, that was my first kind of Mayberry stop in Esbury Park. Yeah. yeah. So Warner, one of the reasons I really wanted to have you on is because of the city historian position. I mean, you know, I have to tell you, I don't I don't believe there's a person in the, that exists in this town that knows more or has more historical knowledge of Esbury Park than you do. So um, tell us a little bit about being the city historian, you know, what that role has been like, what that role is. Um, That's very kind of you uh, to say that. It's been a roller coaster, uh, to say the least. Um, I I left AT&T in 95. I mean, I was involved in Asbury uh, from the time I moved here in 78, but not really entrenched in, in the local politics and such, uh, you know, having a full-time job kind of puts a cramp on that. But when I, when I retired early in, in 95, I had a lot of spare time on my hand and got very, very involved in local affairs and, uh, preservation and history has always been a passion of mine along with engineering and Asbury just fits that mold perfectly, uh, because that's the history of Asbury is technology and engineering and architecture and things like that. So I became very vocal. I would go to council meetings and start, you know, um, making waves, so to speak. But um, eventually, um, Butch Saunders, the mayor at the time, um, took an interest in my commentary about saving the casino. I, I was obsessed with why the casino was a collapsing hulk. 
uh, for decades. And I made that very clear to everybody that I thought that that is the gateway to the rest of the Jersey Shore. I mean, think about it. The boardwalk ends here in Asbury at the north end and goes south for miles through many communities. So people walking the boardwalk or looking north from uh, other communities, the first thing they see is this rotting hulk. And it just really pissed me off. So uh, Butch eventually would start... Instead of asking for, uh, we have any comments from the public, he would start pointing to me and saying, I'd like to hear from my historian. And it made me pretty uncomfortable, you know, that he's putting me on the spot. And um, at the time, Bob Stewart was a, a great friend of mine, good colleague. And he said to me, did you know that there's an actual official position of city historian uh, within city government? And we started talking about it. And uh, that's how it all evolved. So I was I was the local. And what year talk. was this, Werner? Late 90s? In the late 90s. Yeah, mid to late 90s, thereabouts. So I, I started off as the local gadfly, you know, getting everybody riled up about preservation and things should be saved and what's going on with the casino and the convention hall to actually having um, the, the city create the position of city historian officially. And I'm the first ever appointed city historian. Uh, and the only. And the only city historian, right? Yeah, I have been the only city historian. Um, there's no term limit on being city historian. It's an at-will position. I could be uh, removed, you know, just by the stroke of a pen, I guess. But I think- And we theory- pay you thousands of dollars for this position. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I get tons, tons of compensation. No, it's it's intentionally not a salaried position. It's uh, I could get a stipend. I could ask for a small amount of money to take courses and travel and do things. Uh, but I don't. I never have. I've always used my own money, you know, uh, traveling around, advocating for Asbury and uh, taking courses and things. Um, but that's how it all started. It all started with uh, the administration of Butch Saunders and uh, and him taking uh, notice of my uh, passion for preservation and me then coming back and saying, hey, instead of uh, unofficially calling me the historian, let's make it official. And that's how it all uh, came to fruition. So from that point on, then things really just took off. You know, the press got a wind of it and uh, it made the papers. And I started writing grant applications, uh, getting Asbury noticed on a federal level and state level, uh, attending conferences, representing and advocating for Asbury uh, in any place that I went to. I have to bring up one tidbit. Didn't Butch Saunders end up going to jail? Or am I getting him mixed up with somebody else? Did Butch Saunders end up going to jail? I believe he did. I think he did too. There's your tidbit, listeners. Well, there's a proud tradition. I'm pretty sure Butch Saunders went to jail. Yeah, the irony of it is, is that the FBI called me as an expert witness in his prosecution. (laughs) And did you testify? Yes, I did. Yes. Again. Oh, my, wait, I feel like that's a story. Wait, wait, wait. So a for or again on his side or not on his side? Well, it was more like just factual background about the election and how it went and who won the seats and how the city government is organized and structured. Historical background. But it was rather ironic. You know, they brought me into the courtroom on the witness stance, wore me in. And I, I waved. I said, hi, Butch, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, oh, that's hysterical. So so is the city historian position, does the state require you to do anything or is it really kind of what you create of it? It's it's a very open ended kind of thing. But uh, in, in essence, historians uh, typically are uh, academia, you know, researching the history of a community, um, creating programs to advocate and preserve Uh, Many historians become archivists working with the local library and the local municipality and city clerk. Um, That's the general job. Um, Unfortunately, in Asbury Park, with the crazy politics and the backstabbing that tends to happen, I never got uh, very far with fulfilling those goals. Uh, There was a lot of backlash, you know, when you become um, notorious or uh, or in public view quite a bit. People uh, take offense at it and want to beat you down. You know what they say, the the, the proud nail gets beat down, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so, uh, you know, I started doing what I'm supposed to do. And then, you know, there was a strong backlash. And uh, uh, especially when councils change, you know, administrations change, development changes, um, it becomes very and city managers change, right? I mean, when you have a diff, you know when you have a, a city manager who's supportive and a city manager who isn't. I think um, 
Let me just say one, one point on that in terms of like, I don't think people have any concept. I'm going to give two examples. I went to the Kola farm, uh, farm to table vegan dinner. And the woman sitting next to me kept talking about the divey bar brick wall, which if you had lived in Asbury Park longer than 15 years, you know, brick wall is not really divey, right? Gold digger or anybody's, or we can name you a cameo. We can name you a bunch of divey bars. It's not brick wall. And I think also to, to the point is that new people, well, we've had a, a couple of, uh, not a lot of drama filled elections, not tremendous drama. The elections in Asbury Park, at least in 2013 and before, have been utter and complete shit shows. I mean, just really, really crazy yeah. elections. When you're when you the first time I'm getting into politics, it, it, it's <laughs> I, I, I don't know that people have a concept of what politics is like in Asbury 10 years ago. And while they've, it's been slightly, it's died down a little, it, 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 it back in its heyday, it was, um, it's a tough, tough election in Asbury yeah, Park to win. The reason for that is historical. And I uh, should say that it was because all seats came up simultaneously all at once. There were major swings. Uh, sometimes entire councils got voted out and a whole new slate of people would take over. Uh, such as in uh, in 2000, I believe. Uh, very tw- well. Right, right. There was a whole turnover. Uh, a lot of good things that I had started prior to that got thrown out the window. Um, and that's when the fishermen came in. That's when the fishermen uh, became the new developer. Although we had credible developers on the table that I had nurtured and brought to the city. It was very distressing. But yeah, now with staggered terms, you don't see that kind of huge fluctuation anymore. Yeah. And the other thing, the elections were every year and it was at least when all five sweeped out and all new five people in theory swept in, you had less acrimony. But in 2013, you had half and half, right? Half the incumbents remained and then you had half new people. And that just means you all hate each other. I mean, you just all hate each other because you just <laughs> ran an election. And um, so to me, the worst, at least in my experience, I'm now on staggered terms, but the worst is when tickets split and you just get two different factions that have spent months fighting each other um, on the council. That's a tough one. Absolutely. And, yeah. And so Werner, so I forget, I, you know, I, I'm not sure, but I know Jack Kelly put you back in, right? When, when we won and hired Jack, you, you that, became. That's true. Um, there, there was um, Terry Weldon um, after uh, I was appointed by Wilbur Russell and Terry Weldon took an immediate dislike to me um, because I had brought in Ron Berman uh, development company from Trenton to uh, be one of the developers. I brought Sitar company in uh, to be a developer and uh, they wanted nothing to do with those people. They wanted fishermen, and I was viewed as part of the old guard. Uh, so Terry Weldon illegally, I might add, declared my position null and void. And what year was this, Werner? Um, when when the, he became city manager. I believe that was, what, 2000? Early 2000s, very yeah. early 2000s, early I think. 2000s. Uh, he, he basically... Some council people, I, I won't mention names for, you know, obvious reasons, but there was a particular council woman that really had it in for me. And um, basically, I was persona non grata uh, at that point in time. Uh, they declared my position null and void. So I started referring to myself as the city historian in exile because uh, what they were saying had no legal basis. So I would go to the mic, uh, introduce myself as city historian in exile. I would do interviews as city historian in exile. (laughs) And that just riled people up uh, more and more, you know, from the political side. But I didn't care because I had to get my message out, you know. Um, So things died down uh, a bit. Um, Some several city managers later, Jack Kelly finally uh, took a liking to me. Uh, He really enjoyed my knowledge base and what I could add to him, you know, being city manager and understanding what happened. And then Bob Stewart um, supported me also, obviously, uh, wrote a letter explaining the whole illegal uh, removal of my office. And uh, Jack uh, said, I'm going to fix that, you know, and he fixed it and he uh, reappointed me, although legally he didn't have to, but it's official, you know, from that point forward again. 
I want to uh, talk a little bit about um, sure. the historian part, mm-hmm. you know, because I, you know, um, part of this podcast, we're re- always reviewing history and things as we talk to guests and try to talk about things that happened in the past. And I like to quote uh, from an article you know, where you were quoted a while back. I said, once you start digging, you find more and more. And I find it's the Uh-oh. most interesting thing about Asbury Park is that I keep finding more and more interesting things that I had no idea. You know, recently we found out three in one oil was started here. You know, the, um, you know, the, the bicycling mania that had taken over Asbury at some point. And um, so when you're, you besides the casino and the, um, the carousel, what, what are some of the facts that sort of got you charged up and sort of had you like going, this is really interesting. I want to dig this down, you know, dig down farther to find more about this. Um, the whole atmosphere of Asbury is, is something that's completely unique in this area. Aside from Ocean Grove, Bradley Beach, which are directly related to the same time period, Asbury is one of the oldest planned communities in the United States. And it represents the work of what we now call a master developer. Um, he's sitting right there out on the beach, uh, James Bradley, the statue uh, that's erected there. He's Asbury Park's master developer. And uh, the more I dug into it, the more interesting it became, because to have uh, such wide streets, to have uh, civic properties, public properties uh, set aside for future use um, was really forward looking. You know, and and that touches on engineering. Since I'm an engineer, also I kind of had a, a passion for engineering, technology, and and architecture, and and good design, like all combined. And that's what really attracted me uh, to digging deeper into Asbury about what's special about it. Well, I like that you brought the design because you know, correct me if I'm wrong. As an engineer, um, Asbury had the first sewer system in New Jersey. I believe so. Yes. Uh, uh, Sanitary sewers were a big thing in those days. Um, major cities around the country um, suffered from uh, problems of, uh, you know, poor water in the streets, flowing in gutters, mm. lack of sanitation, creating diseases and things. And Bradley took that to heart because he, this was a resort. He created this as a health resort. So certainly sanitation and sewers were extremely important. He also created the very first health department. Um, to inspect properties, and uh, properties were regularly inspected for sanitation, uh, lack of flies, uh, any diseases that might be around um, with people being ill, like tuberculosis for quarantine purposes. So there were uh, health records and health inspections that were done regularly to to keep everything nice for the tourist trade. And Werner, you're talking about like wide streets and and, um, public space and public buildings. What did uh, Bradley get right, and what would you say Bradley got wrong in the in the design process of Esbury? You know, it, it's hard to find anything wrong. I mean, his his plan was uh, was genius. Um, you know, a rectangular grid of streets uh, utilizing the natural resources like the lakes and the ocean. Um, you have to realize his parcel that he originally purchased only went to the railroad tracks, and the railroad didn't even exist in those days. It stopped in Long Branch. Um, so, you know, there was a, a limited number of ways to get down here. You had to take a horse and buggy from the train station in Long Branch, but eventually that was extended down here. And, um, you know, the health aspect, being a health resort, uh, was extremely important in those days. The, it was post-Civil uh, War, the Reconstruction era in the United States, and a lot of migrants would come up from the South uh, looking for work. And uh, he provided that work in order to build a lot of the properties that are in Asbury Park. Um, he sold lots, but he kept the major portion of the beachfront to his own personal property. So he owned the entire beachfront and he had complete control. He set the rules um, and he made the law. Basically, he was the law um, over public space. The other thing, uh, you know, uh, we've talked about this before, Amy, is that he was also very modern. I'm thinking of the streetcar system he'd set up. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, lighting. He always he always took uh, the best that was offered from technology and incorporated that into Asbury. Uh, sanitation, electric lighting, centralized gas distribution, uh, trolley cars, um, health inspections. These were all very forward looking um, on cutting edge technologies that he 
greatly uh, embraced and brought into Asbury Park to make his resort, you know, the premier resort in America. And he successfully, right? It was one of the premier places in the oh, Absolutely. Yeah. Extremely, extremely successful. Yeah. What's well, interesting. You have to understand, though, the convention hall as we know it today didn't exist. The casino building as we know it today didn't exist. But there were predecessors to those buildings that were in the same locations, essentially, um, that were built in the 1900s. Um, and they served the same function as attractions for tourism and entertainment and things of that nature. Werner, what was interesting to me about what you said kind of early on was that to you, the, the building that was most important was the casino, which is interesting because I think if you ask most people today, they would say Convention Hall. So what was it about the casino that you were like, this is the building, but you need to be focusing on? Oh, OK. Um, yeah, the, the casino was in the worst condition, the most disrepair. But I always viewed it as the gateway to Asbury Park. It's the front door. It's the first thing, uh, first impression that you see from any community south of here. Uh, imagine going to Bradley Beach or Avon or Spring Lake and walking the boardwalk or bicycling up the boardwalk. And the first thing you encounter is this, this rotting hulk. Certainly doesn't make a good impression. And for many years, the arcade going through the boardwalk passage through the casino was actually closed to the public. You had to go around the outside of the building. How uninviting is that? Um, I think the casino is has is and has always been the linchpin to making Asbury Park uh, more integrated with the rest of the communities uh, south of us, which have millions of people visiting. Um, imagine what their impression is, you know, seeing that as the first thing. Oddly enough, it's disrepair had its own kind of attraction. So when we, you know, when I first came down here, how many people have you seen had their wedding have had their wedding pictures in front of the rusting beams of the uh, uh, casino? So there, you know, there's a different aesthetic about it there, uh, that people got attached to. Mm -hmm. uh, for those of us who remember what it used to be like, you know, it's sort of a bit of an eyesore. But then other people got attached to it's like what with the mystique of what was here, right? Because there's like a fossil. They're wondering what was the what was the whole dinosaur like? <laughs> you know, we can see what 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 what's going on here, right? Yeah, I uh, I could see that also uh, as an attraction. Uh, unfortunately, it could be actually a functional building and be restored and be uh, a lot more useful to the city and much more attractive. Um, it, it's just one of the wonders of the 1920s, 1930s architecture. You know, the Roaring Twenties was called the Roaring Twenties for a reason. Um, just pre-depression is when the buildings were built, the casino and the convention hall. And uh, they're just monumental uh, works of art, essentially. The other building I think is a monumental work of art is the post office. I mean, if you look, that building is the building is stunning. in every, it is stunning. It is stunning in every sense of the word. Um, New City Hall, maybe? Maybe. I would love that. You know, so uh, Nancy Sabino just asked me, could we turn that into an Asbury Museum? Which I also thought was kind of an interesting idea. Like, have it be, if it weren't the post office, have it be uh, a museum to pay homage to, you know, past, present, and future of Asbury Park. I thought that was a good idea, too. Well, the, the design of that, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Werner. I've got a better idea. The, the current firehouse, once they build a new facility, the, the current firehouse should be a visitor center slash museum. That's a good idea as well. All right. I'm making a note of that, Werner. I'm making a note of that. The yeah. other building, I'm going to say one other building that I also think is spectacular in Asbury, and Joe, Joe knows it because we lived in it, is the Santander. I think that is one of the most spectacular looking buildings in Asbury. Yeah, 19, 1920s. Yeah, there's something yeah. interesting about the 20s uh, types of architecture. They're very ornate, uh, very visually appealing, you know, massive, have strong bones, that kind of thing. That's what's missing in the uh, current waterfront redevelopment plan is those types of buildings are not encouraged. Mm -hmm. um, so and what? It, why is that? Is that because they're so costly? Uh, they're extremely costly to build, um, to get the detail right. Um, so I think it was kind of omitted as a uh, courtesy, so to speak. But then again, what's being built uh, is not, not that cheap either, you know? glass frame and steel and, and things of that nature. Uh, where you get into problems in my mind is when you just build a box, a box with windows and balconies. I think uh, that that's an insult uh, to Asbury Park. And that seems to be the direction we're going, which is fortunate. Werner, you stumbled on a joke I tell people that, you know, I, I've been threatening to write an article for years called So Much Money, So Little Imagination. And, and it's not just about Asbury Park, but like a lot of new buildings are like, 
done with all the the design forethought of like a box, uh, uh, like a stack of Payless shoe boxes at the mall, right? Just you know, not real nice, right? But I, you, Amy, you brought something up. Is there, Werner, is there a connection between the people who built the Santander and the people who built Convention Hall? Because I noticed in the years we were living there, uh, Amy, the, the tiles on the floor of the lobby of the Santander are the same as inside the con- a convention hall. So I was like, oh, they're, uh, I was wondering if it was this, you know, and there's a sort of a Spanish uh, arch- you know, arch- influence on the inside of the convention hall. I was like, I wonder if it was the same company, you know, because um, when you see those tiny little detailed tiles, um, you know, I was like, well, that's convention hall is the same as Grand Central Station, right? Wetmore, I'm going to say their name wrong, but I'm going to say Warren and Wetmore or something. That's right. You would know more than me, Warner. Yeah, the, the architect of Convention Hall and the casino building uh, is Warren and Wetmore, who did many works in uh, in New York and several minor works here in Asbury Park. I don't think uh, anything in the Santander is attributable to them as architects. However, noticing the material similarities could be explained by just a, a certain number of artisans you know, available at that time period, um, coming down and bringing, uh, materials that were available. Like, you know, you go to the big box store, uh, your neighbor, you know, five miles away building a house is probably using the same kind of tile and countertops and things. Yeah. They got a guy. (laughs) It's kind of supply, you know, a supply side thing. Um, I've never researched, uh, personally, uh, who the architect of the Santander is, Perhaps you'd like to. I would love to. I've tried. I don't know where to look. You know, I've, I've tried multiple times because that's been there's uh, if anyone listening is ever in the, the lobby of the Santander, the, there's these tiles, but interspersed in this design are these one off singular tiles. One can be like a dragon and another one is blue. And so there's not a lot of them. It's those tiles that match the the, the convention center. And I was like, so I think it's more like attributable, attributable to what you said. There's There was a guy. He had tiles and both builders used them, you know, um, but, uh, you know, it, it always intriguing who built that. Um, Cause I think the Santander looks like a building in Red Bank as well. And I was like, so I'm wondering, it's like, the, and, and it looks like convention hall. So I was wondering if there's a whole series of architects, but that's a separate conversation. You know? Werner, I want to talk to you a little bit. So you, you've also been a part of the um, historical society, right? Or I created the historical society. Okay, so tell us tell us a little bit about them. I, I sometimes I struggle with the historical society, but we'll put a pin in that for a while. Honestly, <laughs> that that's another uh, you know uh, rags to riches to rags kind of a story. Um, when I first came here, as I said early on in the eighties uh, seventies, uh, I. Uh, became very interested in history and was shocked to know that there was no historical society. I was looking for historical records at the library. And uh, again, I have to give kudos to, to Bob Stewart. You know, we didn't have any such uh, archive to look through. We didn't have any such organization. And again, he suggested, well, you know, you could always create a historical society. And I took it to heart. So I, I did create the historical society in the 80s. It kind of had a, a one or two false starts because it's very hard to organize people and get them uh, motivated uh, to stick through it. But later yeah, on, yeah, I can relate to that, Warner. Yeah, later later on in the '90s, there was much more momentum, um, and um, I actually had a, a core group of people, and uh, we created the Historical Society, and uh, became very um, popular in the press, and then giving tours and doing doing various things. Uh, but then, you know, I, I touch back on that uh, that hard time with Terry Weldon and the council at that period. Um, some people outside of my historical society got together and incorporated their own historical society, which you can imagine how that kind of went. <laughs> so all, I can. All the good work that me and my board had done for the last, you know, five to six years was essentially claimed by a new group of people because they incorporated and became the official incorporated Asbury Park Historical Society. And uh, it's like the I original was, famous race pizza. Which one? <laughs> Which I, one is it? I, I was treated like I didn't exist, basically. You know, it was like a, it was like a new start. If you ask them when their anniversary is, they'll tell you it's oh, well, you know, it's when, when the organization was incorporated. 
uh, completely ignoring the, the five to six to seven years prior to that, that I was actually uh, creating the historical society and putting all the goodwill out. It's a painful subject, believe me. Oh, I'm sorry, Werner. That's okay. No, it's the truth, though. You know, that's crazy. Yeah. And when you're saying Terry, you're you're you mean Terry Weldon. You don't mean any of Terry Reedy during this time, right? You know, Terry Terry Weldon. That that was the all Terry Weldon. Okay. That was, that was the changeover from uh, support for history and preservation to uh, shoving it like under the rug and having other people, you know, uh, take the credit. And did, did Terry Reedy not appoint you a city historian? I'm forgetting. You know, I I got along with Terry Reedy, uh, and he heard the he knew the whole factual basis behind it. I kind of explained it to him, and and you know he understood. But his I I can quote. I guess you know if he's listening to this, he'll he'll remember this quote. He said, Warner, I'd like to help you out, but I'm not falling on my sword for you. Okay. Well, you know what? That's honest, right? So, uh, you know, I was kind of still in exile, you know, still very active and very vocal, but still in exile until uh, Jack Kelly uh, officially put me back in the in the seat. Werner, one of your passions I know is, well, two of your big passions I know are public space and lighting. And I'm sure, yeah. I, well, I assume you remember, you took me on a lighting tour years ago when I first got elected and showed me Absolutely. good lighting and bad lighting. And it was actually very, very, I'm not on planning or zoning, and right. so I don't have much to do with it because those boards, um, those are just not the boards I'm on. But it was a very, very helpful uh, example, you took me through Interlaken and kind of showed me the lighting there. And then you took me through Asbury Park and kind of showed me the lighting in Asbury Park. And it was really, I understood what you meant by good and bad lighting. Unfortunately, it's only gotten worse since then. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a sign of technology. Uh, let me touch on the public spaces first, because that's really the overriding uh, concept is the public environment, the built environment. The most important thing about Asbury Park is the built environment, the way the streets are organized, the way the public spaces address the streets, the amount of space between things, the regularity of it all, the view corridors, you know, these are all important things that give you the look and feel. People don't realize that the built environment has a psychological effect on how you perceive a comfort factor. And Asbury Park is a very comfortable kind of environment. Um, lighting should blend with that and not conflict with it. Uh, and then you get into the technology. You know, over the years, we've gone from incandescent lights um, to uh, sodium vapor lights, uh, to halogen lights, and now LED lights, you know, and compact fluorescent lights. Each subsequent evolution in technology made it very easy for the average person to just go to the big box store, grab a light off the shelf and slap it on their house or a commercial building to grab a generic light off the shelf and put it on their building. Unfortunately, none of them are, are people friendly. You know, they're more like for lighting up a space like a sports stadium, um, very glary, very um, broad uh, casting of light that creates harsh shadows Glare is the, the biggest problem. Um, anybody who's listening to this or yourselves, if you go out at night, just look at how many sources of glare there are in addition to the headlights alone. Headlights, you can't do much about at this point because there's no state law governing headlights. But lights on buildings are the, the most light pollution creating uh, elements in the city, essentially. And it's only getting worse and worse. There's no enforcement. Now, I know last year we adopted a lighting ordinance. I don't see any effect of that whatsoever so far. I don't think there's anybody going out there at night. And enforce. So you're saying it exists, but it's not being enforced. It's not being enforced. Yeah, we, we adopted a lighting ordinance. And I, I like to think that my, you know, prodding, um, kind of spurred that on. I had some support with some uh, planning board members. Um, it's not the ideal ordinance, um, but I don't see any effect uh, in the positive direction of having adopted that. And so, and then we're going to move on from this, but are there specific buildings that you think are in violation of the ordinance and oh, you want to send them to me? Oh, I'll, I'll send you a whole uh, wheelbarrow full if you like. Okay. <laughs> all you need to do is go out and look for glare. That's all you need to do. Look okay. at look a floodlight. Look at everything that's imp 
impeding your ability to see at night. You know, when you have a bright light source directly into your eyes, it reduces your ability to see properly at night. If you can see the source of the light, it's a bad light. That, that's kind of the way you should look at it. And you can find them all over the place. So to, um, I don't want to change the subject, but you know, to sort of circle back to some of the historical events we were talking about before, you mentioned Bradley was um, big into public health. And I recently discovered that Asbury Park had a hospital. Uh, do you know where that was? It, it came up twice in things I've read recently. It was actually mentioned in, um, in a research for um, our previous episode. I saw that in the, in the had a radio, the, radio, the Asbury Park radio station was temporarily housed there. And I was you know, thinking around town, I was like, where was there a hospital? I think they're referring to well, what's currently known as Jersey Shore uh, Medical Center, previously known as Fitkin Hospital, and I think previously the Asbury Park Hospital. Uh, oh, okay. Owned the golf course out there also. They own property outside city limits. Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense that it's not actually in this, the grid between Main Street and the beach. I was like, that doesn't make sense. Like, yeah. where in the world did they fit a hospital here? Oh. Right. Oh. And Werner, I should have given you a heads up for this, but Joe tried to find somebody who could talk to him a little bit about the Studebaker building, which he finds fascinating. I'm obsessed with the Studebaker logo oh, in that building. Yeah, uh, that's an industrial building next to the railroad track. And uh, some of the uh, uh, industrial motifs of uh, steam engines and things at the top of the building have been stuccoed over, from what I mm -hmm. remember. It still has the Studebaker emblem on yeah. it. There's more to that building than meets the eye because it's plastered over, unfortunately. Well, I'm obsessed with it because I think when, when did Studebaker go out of business? In, in the 40s, early 50s? And the logo is still there. A very wonderful sign, like a nicely made sign is still there. So I was like, what happened in this building? And what has this building been doing since Studebaker closed? Um, you know, um, anyway, you know, that's my, one of my regional obsessions like, with that, oh, with that sign, but it's like, into that. <laughs> I did. I even sent a picture of it to the Studebaker museum. I said, can anyone help me out? Like, does anyone have the history of this building? Cause there's not a lot of those signs left, Interesting. Um, but nobody, you know, as usual, no one got back to me. <laughs> well, that's, that's just a, sort of a dichotomy here because Individual buildings have merit um, around town. You can see something like signage or, uh, you know, interesting architecture uh, and be fascinated by that. But the, the main thing about Asbury is the, the built environment. That's the historic asset that everybody seems to miss. You know, you've got people putting fences and public rights away. Uh, you know, they're, they're putting uh, flower gardens out uh, in public space, uh, customizing what really is public space. And that's what's damaging Asbury. The individual buildings uh, that are privately owned, uh, there's very little you can do outside of a historic preservation ordinance to control that. But the municipality, the city, could certainly control public property to a much greater degree than it currently does. Yes, <laughs> good. Um, listen, Werner, I have to ask you a couple of the questions that people called in for because we're get, it's it's five forty one. We only have about nine more minutes to um, to get get this information. So one of the questions I have is has as and this was not on the list I sent you. So bear with me. Has Esbury Park ever had any sort of brick and mortar museum? And any thoughts as to to why it has not? If it has not. I don't believe it has. As far as I know, there's never been an official museum. Now, now there is a, a group that created uh, an organization called the Asbury Park Museum. I believe, we had them on. I believe Kay Harris mm -hmm. um, and company. Um, so I think that's your first foray into that. That's the answer to that. But All right. Your second question was demolition by neglect, specifically relating to the casino carousel and convention hall at the convention hall in Paramount. So your thoughts on the demolition by neglect? Um, yeah, it, it's unfortunate. Um, having privatized those buildings, the, the theory was to sell them cheap to a, uh, a high net worth developer so that the city didn't have to do all the repair work and all the restoration needed. Well, that's fallen flat on its face, unfortunately. And, um, there's millions of dollars that are needed. Uh, the, the simple fact is that I think the city in one of their negotiated settlements through the courts signed off on Convention Hall as being uh, 
no longer uh, worthy of any investment by the developer, that everything, all the requirements were met. You may want to look in your files, Amy. I think you'll find something in there that says uh, the city signs off that all obligations are satisfied. So this Yeah, is- I have to tell you, Warren, the, the waterfront redevelopment agreement, and I know you feel passionate about it as well, is an yeah. ongoing um, uh, obstacle for us to get the things that we want. Uh, it's just, it remains. And the other issue, just kind of talking about new people, I know we were talking a little bit about new people in town, the amount of people who have no concept of it, right? So they're just screaming about whatever they're screaming about without even having a concept of the agreement that dates really truly back to, I think, 1984. Don't quote me on that date, but I think I'm in the ballpark on that. And then, you know, 2002 and forward. So a lot of what you're seeing with a few amendments here and there with the waterfront redevelopment agreement is something outside of many of the council's um, purview to change and trying to explain that to people online who are screaming about what insert whatever misinformation they have uh, has been certainly frustrating on our part. But do you want to take a minute on the waterfront redevelopment agreement? Because when I moved to town or shortly thereafter, when I moved to town, I was going to law school at night and working. So I wasn't involved. But I remember at some point going to the Berkeley because somebody in my building was like, you should go to the Berkeley. And you all were having the big I guess it was the 2002, right? The 2002, uh, yeah. The charrettes to, uh, you know, craft a better redevelopment. Yeah, so talk. can you talk people a little bit about through that experience, Warner? Oh, well, that that was quite interesting. Um, Andres Duani is a world-renowned urban planner, and um, the city hired him to push back from the plan that was crafted by the developer himself and presented to the city. Part of the settlement, um, you know, when the bankruptcy was settled and all the tax liens were, were settled and the public properties were sold, um, involved a plan. It's just that the city was not involved in the drafting of that plan to any substantial degree. And the public uh, pushed back on that. So the city hired Andres Duani to, uh, bring it more in conformity with what the public wanted. So they had these charrettes, these design charrettes to throw ideas around. It was it was a great experience. Uh, I got a phone call uh, from uh, some people that were friendly with the uh, council at the time then and said, hey, uh, Werner, uh, by the way, you're not being invited to this. You're being shooed away. And I said, what? You know, and I thought it was kind of obvious. Where's my coat? I I reached out to Andres Duani personally, and I introduced myself as the city historian, and um, he was fascinated to to have the call, and he invited me to a a meeting that he was having. And um, so I had a private meeting, several meetings with with Duani and his team uh, in order to uh, work out the historical uh, preservation aspects, like what is important about Asbury? To keep and the, one of the main things we came up with, obviously, is architecture. You know, interesting architecture that fits in with the time period of evolution, and then the scale and mass of buildings. You know, um, even though it was going to be block by block development, large block development, uh, the plan requires a a certain intimate scale and nice architecture. That's kind of where we went with that. But uh, the public spoke. I mean, it was it was a great experience to go through about a week's worth of uh, different meetings with uh, the community and different professionals. Okay, I got to ask another question that we got on the thread. Can you make recommendations on resources for homeowners to research the histories of their houses and neighborhoods in Esbury Park? Like when you're researching stuff, Warner, what do you use? Absolutely. The first thing to do is stay local. Go right to the Asbury Park Public Library and ask them, uh, give, give them the address of your house uh preferably by street address not block and lot because records weren't kept in block and lot in those days and ask for the sanitary inspection report uh it's a health report remember i had mentioned that bradley had started the first right. uh, health inspections well that that continued on uh quite p- past bradley uh, having died and that was one of my discoveries when they were building the new sewer plant they were planning to demolish the old one and i went over there and lo and behold, there were file cabinets full of property records, 
sanitary inspection reports that they kept to locate sewer pipes. But upon reading them, I realized that they contained a wealth of information, like when the property was built, who the architect or the builder might have been, uh, if any the families that had lived in there, if anybody had died of tuberculosis, um, just a, a huge amount of historical interesting information. So that's the first thing. Go to the public library and uh, find that record. The other thing is go to the county archives uh, out in uh, Manalapan. Um, they have what are called uh, builders' liens files. Anybody that uh, didn't get paid in those days, uh, they would file a lien against your property. And you could find out who the builder might have been if there's a lien filed, you know, decades ago that's uh, on historical record at the county archives. Those are the two best sources. And also um, um, maps. You go online to the Library of Congress and uh, Sanborn maps are a great resource also. They were created by a fire insurance company uh, to uh, determine risk factors. And you might find your property you know, on a Sanborn map and be able to date it that way. All right, last question. And then, um, and then we, can, we can start to wrap up. But can you ask Werner about the historical ornamental choices made on the boardwalk and about the specific designer? Now I'm guessing that, and that's Wood Malls, so that's probably Jen. Now, I'm thinking that is a little bit the tile that, that Joe's referring to, although I should have asked her specifically. Uh, possibly. You might, might be referring to the nautical motifs on, uh, oh, right, right. on the casino. I mean, clearly, you know, the seashore, you know, atmosphere, fish and uh, sea dragons and ships. Um, inside the Paramount, you have comedy and tragedy, dramatic kind of elements. So uh, it, it would, it's very common for public buildings uh, like that to have those kind of ornamentations uh, indicating, you know, their, their function and their use and their location. Nothing and, unusual. You know, Asbury is a sister city or was, you know, related to Coney Island in some way. But I haven't been to Coney Island since I was maybe 10. So I didn't notice this. <clears throat> Did any of the design elements that we see in Asbury, uh, do we know if any of those are visible in Coney Island? Was there a duplication or is this Asbury specific? When we talk about the design of the convention, the grinning, the grinning face, you know, chucklehead, uh, as they mm -hmm. call it in uh, Coney Island, uh, Tilly, as it was subsequently named uh, here in Asbury. We had a steeplechase park run by the same person who ran steeplechase park in Coney Island and Atlantic City, by the way. That was like the triad of amusements in the, the Northeast here, Coney Island, Asbury Park and uh, Atlantic City. So, yeah, there were I have some... to tell you, I go to Atlantic City. I'm actually going to Atlantic City um, tonight for to play poker. And the draw of Atlantic City, it's different. And Jen and I were actually talking about this re recently, Michelle Alonzo. There is such a similar feel in Atlantic City that there is to Asbury Park. It's the and I'm going to and I'm sure somebody somewhere is going to take offense to what I'm saying. There is there was more passion in Asbury Park and there's feels like there's more desperation in Atlantic City. I think that's probably a result of the casinos and maybe because I'm in I those think, casinos seeing the desperation. The yeah. But there is such a similar feel when I go to Atlantic City that I have in Asbury Park. Yeah, yeah. That was the golden triangle here in the in the northeast. Yeah. I didn't know that. That's really interesting. Werner favorite building in Asbury Park and then Joe and then you can go Joe and then we have to favorite building convention hall Paramount Theater. Absolutely. Hands down. Me too. Me too. So I have, I have, I have two questions. Favorite Asbury Park historical fact? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, or most surprising, something like, oh, I did not know that. that I, okay. All right. That, that's a tough one, too. Uh, <laughs> well, you mentioned the sanitary sewer system, so mm -hmm. I can't mention that again. I think, I think that the health department thing mm -hmm. is probably a, a good one because prior to that, you know, people went to places and uh, they were dirty and uh, you could get diseased. Mm -hmm. oh, okay. So um, Asbury Park evolved between the 1900s into the 1920s on one major thing, fireproof buildings. Prior, You are the second person to bring that up to us. Oh, yeah. interesting. Fireproof buildings, fireproof public buildings in particular. Um, that's a big one. And also air conditioning. Uh, are you aware that uh, Paramount Theater had uh, one of the earliest uh, air conditioning systems um, based on ammonia and seawater being the cooling medium? 
you know, now you stick an air conditioner out your window or out in your backyard and it's the air and Freon. Mm-hmm. In those days, it was ammonia and seawater that created the cooling. Uh, I think that's fascinating. That's pretty, uh, yeah, the, the, those early um, ex- water-based air conditioners, and that was a big draw in like New York City when, you know, miserable New York City July afternoon, they could put a sign out, you know, come in and cool off, you know, to see, yeah, to yeah. see a movie, you know. Well, the, the popular term was refrigerated. They didn't even call it air conditioning in those days. <laughs> come in, it's refrigerated. <laughs> well, I think, I love the idea you mentioned about the, the fire safety, because I just read about the 1917 fire. Uh, today, when I was you know thinking about things to talk about, I had no idea. And uh, and we look at like Ocean Grove still suffers from like anytime there's a fire in Ocean Grove, I'm always afraid the whole town's going to go down. Oh, right? it's a huge, huge risk. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Oh, here's here's an interesting thing. Um, central steam heating. You know, people always forget about the steam plant. Some people think it's an incinerator over at the south end there with the chimney on it. That's actually a central steam heating plant. The entire boardwalk, all the pavilions, all the way up to the Convention Hall and beyond were centrally steam heated by that plant years ago. Huh. That's amazing. Like, there's so many interesting, yeah, technology. They brought a lot of technology to bear, you know, yeah, exactly. at the time, right? So we look at it as quaint now, but at the time, it might as well have been like uh, Silicon Valley, uh, yeah, you know, in yeah. terms of the use. Werner, I'm giving you a hundred million dollars. What are you prioritizing with that hundred million dollars? What are the first thing? What are we doing with that if it, uh, if it's handed to you and you can only use it, you know, for Asbury Park? Well, I'm I'm buying the convention hall and, and Paramount, and I'm moving in. Okay. <laughs> I would also like a unit in there too, Werner. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say I would focus on um, getting real historic icons like those former public properties, getting them out of private hands and properly restoring them. And uh, then, you know, redoing the redevelopment plan would be a big one. I'm with you. <laughs> um, you know, uh, I think, you know, the, the public, the caring for the public's needs is really where it's at. That's where Bradley started. He realized that in order to attract people, you had to go- have good public amenities. And I think that's what's lost on us now. Everything's been handed over to private enterprise and we just kind of accept, you know, what they give us, you know? Um, So I think that's where my money would go. I see a lot, Werner, and I don't know if you can speak to this, but when, so when I first got elected in 2013, the, the number one issue was crime. That was number one, but number two was a lack of redevelopment. And then over the years, I get this mentality and it's, changing but not as fast as it should change mm-hmm. of like we should just be so grateful they're here right we should just right. be so grateful these developers are here mm-hmm. and i want to bang my head against the wall because we don't need there may look i will say there may be there may have been a time where we should have been grateful they were here that's fine that's fine no problem i'll give you that but mm-hmm. that time has passed that yeah. time has passed I, I think i think education of the people in positions of authority is important. Uh, as you said, there's a lot of new people in town, but there's a, there's a transition in, in people like on the planning board, the zoning board, city council, um, city managers, you know, everybody, everybody has a, a different view of how things should be prioritized. I think uh, maybe some, some training, you know, in terms of uh, historical background would kind okay. of put people on the same page as to what's important or, uh, you know, why things were done the way they were um, is important, and people lose sight of that also. Certain documents are not written very clearly. Unless you were there when they were drafted, the meaning can be interpreted incorrectly in this day and age, you know, versus 20 years ago. You know, clarifying a lot of that stuff would be very important. Yeah, no, I think it's a great point. Listen, we are on the hour mark, guys. Um, Werner, yeah. anything that we should have asked you and we didn't? And I have yeah. to tell you again, just a wealth, a wealth of knowledge, Werner. You've, you've got your list there of questions. You got another question? No, I did them. I, I went through everything. All right. I, I, I have one last question before we go then. Does the radio station, do you think the radio broadcast facilities inside convention hall still work? <laughs> They're not even there anymore. Oh, darn it. <laughs> So I had I had the privilege of having the keys to the, the property when I was a uh, mm-hmm. city historian and uh, and the building was public uh, overlapping you know when it was public property I had an office over there and I had free run of the place so believe me I've been in every nook and cranny in that place um, I would add that um, 
there's still a theater organ in there. That, that was needs, my second question. Is the organ still in there? Needs yeah. to be addressed. You know, it's privately owned now, but it would be a huge tourist attraction. It rivals uh, Radio City's organ, right? In terms of its size and capability? No, not really. No, that's no? <laughs> the scale is completely different, but it's okay. our organ. Right. You know? <laughs> Thank well, you, Werner. Madison Marquette's organized what I should say. Yeah, you should, right? Listen, thank you, Werner, so much. And and thank you to Ming and Sherry. Right, thanks, Werner. Well, thanks so appreciate much. It. Really appreciate, appreciate it. Thanks it. for coming on the show.